0: All right, if you would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in the New Testament book of John, and we're going to be in chapter 1 this morning as we are continuing on in a sermon series entitled, Who's Your One? We've been in this sermon series for a few weeks now, and we'll wrap it up next week. Our, one of our songs a minute ago spoke about the fact that he leaves the 99, he leaves the 99 to find one. One. Right, one is so important. In 2020, this year, we have we we've, we've begun our year with this emphasis on evangelism and and reaching out and, and asking everyone in the church to make a commitment to this year reach one person for Jesus. Matter of fact, it would be great if we could make that commitment to this, this month to reach one person for Jesus. But that has to be part of our lives. It has to be part of our spiritual lives. That we don't just, we don't just come and hear, but we also go and tell. There's such a power of one, just the the number one, if you have one flat tire on your car, not four, if you have one, your your car is not going anywhere. If you have one small tear in your parachute, you're going to have a pretty rough landing, or not a very good landing at all. You know that it was just one vote that brought California into the United States. By one vote, Texas came into the United States and started a war with Mexico. There's so much value in one. And in our culture, many people don't find the value in one. People in our world seem to find value in one million or one billion. Nobody talks about the Twitter user that you follow that only has one follower. Nobody talks about that cat video that you watched that only has one view, right? There's this idea of we, 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 need to get, we need to get so many, and if we don't have so many that we're not worth, worth it. Nobody plays a song or learns to play a guitar to go and have a concert in a stadium full of one person. But there is mighty power in that one because if there was never that one person, then you never get a stadium full of people down the road. It starts with one. This morning we're going to be looking at one man and his importance in the ministry of Jesus Christ in a message that I have titled The Power of One. I'd ask you to turn with me we're in John chapter 1 we're going to start in verse number 35 but first I want to set the historical setting the biblical setting for what we're going to read here in a minute. Peter's brother Andrew is one of the least known of the four major disciples that are inside the inner circle of Jesus. Andrew is, ordinarily, he, he's, he's in the background. He's not a name that we hear of a lot. But we're going to learn about Andrew and how important our, he was in our Lord's mission because he touched one who touched thousands. Had Andrew never been born, the New Testament would have been changed entirely. Peter may have never been saved. Someone else may have preached... The, the, the Sermon on Pentecost, we would eliminate two books from the New Testament, First and Second Peter, those would be gone. You think Peter, James, John, Andrew, this inner circle of disciples around Jesus, and Andrew is certainly the least known. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about him. He appears in the New Testament only nine times, and most of the times that we see Matthew or see Andrew in Scripture, he's being overshadowed by his better-known brother, Peter. As a matter of fact, most of the time that you hear about Andrew, the text reads, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He never has a spotlight, but he is a very effective one. I want you to read with me. We're in John chapter one, verse number 35 reads like this. It says, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist we're talking about. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and he saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about the fourth It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to a place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew's personal encounter with Jesus had taken place a few months after uh, the baptism of Jesus. Andrew and John were standing next to John the Baptist at this moment, and, and they hear John, who's probably more than likely baptizing people in the river. And John looks up and sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And John's disciples, Andrew and Peter, hear this and they go to follow Jesus. Andrew and John become the first disciples of Jesus. The news that Andrew heard When he followed Jesus, it was too good to keep to himself. And so he went and he found the one person in the world who he loved the most, and he knew he wanted that person to know about Jesus, and he led him to Christ. That's what Andrew did. Come back with me. We're in verse number 41. John writes this, Andrew went to find his brother Simon, and he told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus, looking intently at Simon. Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. See, Andrew didn't have a large crowd. He didn't go to a large crowd of people to talk to about Jesus. Andrew found one going to lead us to point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you just joining us in your bulletin, you'll find on the left-hand side there's some fill-in-the-blanks, and I'm going to give you those fill-in-the-blanks. They'll also be up here on the big screen. Point number one in your notes this morning, Andrew, he, he saw the value of individual people. He saw the value of individual people. Andrew appreciated the value of a single soul, he was known for bringing individuals to Jesus. He wasn't known for bringing in crowds. He wasn't known for leading a group in Sunday school. He wasn't known for gathering a small group. He was known for bringing people one at a time to Jesus. Almost every time we see Andrew in the Bible, that's what he's doing. He's bringing people to Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus, just One one person in the year 1854 a 17 year old boy was working at a shoe store in Detroit and he didn't know Christ he had no real interest in spirituality but like many kids his age he had been forced by his parents to go to Sunday school and and he did and he went and didn't really care about being there but his Sunday school teacher just knew there was something driving him to talk to this boy Sunday school teacher went to the shop where this boy was working and said, hey, I'm, I'm worried about you and I want to talk to you. And so they went down to the basement of the shoe store and it was there in the basement that this Sunday school teacher led this young man to Christ. Sunday school teacher's name was Edward Kimball. We know that the 17-year-old boy went by the name of d.l moody we all know and we might know and if you don't know i'll tell you about d.l moody he went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in the world is sharing the gospel with upwards to 100 million people he would travel to different countries he would he 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 would he was a, a, a great preacher in chicago and people would come from all ends of the earth to hear D.L. Moody. Moody went on to influence a gentleman by the name of F.B. Meyer. Meyer was a London preacher and Meyer didn't preach about Jesus. He, he would preach the Bible but his focus wasn't on Jesus. Meyer's congregation at one point heard about Moody and they said we would like this new evangelist to come to our church and Meyer wasn't fond of the idea but he, but he He gave into his congregation and he invited Moody to come and preach at his church, preach a revival. Meyer didn't really like him much. He immediately disliked D. L. Moody because he wasn't well dressed. D. L. Moody only had a fifth grade education. He was never ordained. They called him Reverend. They wouldn't call him Reverend because there, there there was this thought that that was all of his education was fifth grade. Meyer had doctorates. He was brilliant. He he knew his Bible inside out. He looked down upon Moody. But Moody got up to preach at this church. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he preached Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He focused his entire message, this entire revival on Christ. And as such, hundreds of people from this congregation came to jesus they came to know jesus as their personal lord and savior meyer was embarrassed by the fact that so many people in his church had come as moody preached he was just consumed with jealousy and a couple of weeks later one of his very own sunday school teachers came up to him and he said you know i used to focus on all kinds of different stuff in my sunday school teaching he says but i She said, I never really focused on Jesus, but Moody taught me to focus on Jesus. And I want to introduce you to a young man in my Sunday school class who I brought to Jesus, who came to Jesus because of the teachings of D.L. Moody. After Meyer heard that story, he started to to weep, and the rest of his life was changed. The rest of his ministry was changed to where he would focus his conversation, focus on bringing people to Jesus, to telling them about Jesus. And through the years... Meyer, he, he influenced a gentleman by the name of, of J. Wilbert Chapman. And Chapman influenced somebody who uh, many of you might know and, and is in our church history books, a gentleman by the name of Billy Sunday. And then, and then Billy Sunday influenced a gentleman by the name of Mordecai Ham Some of you might know that Mordecai Ham is a gentleman who influenced a man by the name of Billy Graham and led Billy Graham to Christ. Many of you probably... May have gone to a Billy Graham crusade. Might know something about his ministry. He died at 99 a couple of years ago. But all over the world, Billy Graham would preach. And he would bring people to Jesus in massive crowds. But you know where it started? It started with one. It started with one person. It's the spiritual dominoes that start to fall. And you see, it's incredible, the power of the gospel. You think Edward Kimball, D.L. Moody, F.B. Meyer, uh, J. Wilbur Chapman, Billy Sunday, Mordecai Ham, then Billy Graham. And maybe it was one of... Billy Graham's ministries, or maybe it's one of his ministries that continues on that reached you. Maybe somebody that told you about Jesus participated in one of those ministries. When we tell somebody about Jesus, we have no way of knowing where that domino is going to fall. We don't know who they're going to go and tell. In our lifetime, we may not ever be aware of the harvest that is going to be brought to the kingdom because of who you told about Jesus. Andrew had been referenced, he's been referenced as the first home ministry because he brought Jewish people to Jesus. And he's also referenced as the first foreign ministry. Missionary because he brought Greeks to Jesus. We see this in John chapter 12 verse number 20 It reads like this some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip Who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said sir, we want to meet Jesus Philip told Andrew about it and they went together to find Jesus Andrew continued throughout his ministry to bring people to Jesus. See, Andrew started in chapter 1, John chapter 1. He brought one person, he brought his brother to Jesus. And 12 chapters later, he's bringing foreigners to Jesus. One at a time, two at a time, he's just bringing them. Just bringing them for, to Jesus. And so you know what he did? As soon as he brought somebody to Jesus, you know what he did right away? Pivots. To go back out. I'm going to go out go and tell again, I'm going to go and look for more people to bring to Jesus. I'm continuing to look for somebody. you might not do you might think that Andrew may have been a little nervous bringing his brother to Jesus the first time? Maybe a little nervous bringing foreigners? maybe as nervous as we are sometimes talking to our family and friends, right? See, we've been asking throughout this entire sermon series, who's your one? Who's this one person in your life that the Lord has, been, has put on your heart to be praying about, to be intentional with, to go out and talk to, to talk to about Jesus? Is everyone that you talk to going to end up going to be D.L. Moody or going to be Billy Graham? You have no idea. We've got no clue. Andrew didn't know that Peter would soon lead thousands of people to Jesus. Mordecai Ham didn't know that he would lead Billy Graham to Jesus, who would lead thousands, if not millions of people worldwide to the kingdom. What if the one person that you bring to Jesus brings just one person to Jesus? And what if that one person just brings one? Is it worth it? Absolutely, it's worth it. Absolutely. One is a major contribution to the kingdom of heaven, because not only is that one more in the presence of God, but that's one less soul that is lost for eternity. It's a twofold win for the kingdom. Here's another deep trait of Andrew that we learn. It's point number two in your notes this morning. Andrew, he saw the value in insignificant gifts. Andrew saw the value in insignificant gifts. Some people see the big picture more clearly just because they appreciate the value of of small things. In the feeding of the 5,000, Philip's vision was so overwhelmed of the size of the need there was an amazing need. We're in John chapter 6, verse number 1. It'll be up here on the screen. It reads like this. It says, after this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and he sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time of the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew simon peter's brother spoke up said there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish but what good is that with this huge crowd i want you to think about that for a moment we might think the same way that andrew was thinking that here's one small boy And his lunch that's it barley loaves back then were for the poor this boy, is not, he's not carrying around a catered lunch from Subway. No, he's got just loaves and fish. And just like Andrew, we could look at it and say, maybe it's absolutely useless, but Andrew still brought it to Jesus. Because Andrew says, when it comes to 5,000 people, I can't do anything with this. But when it comes to giving this small gift to Jesus, he can do amazing things with this. He can do miraculous things with a small gift. As a matter of fact, Jesus reminds the disciples in Luke chapter 21 that even the smallest gift is amazingly significant. I want to look at this and what Luke says. We're in, chapter, uh, verse number, uh, 20, uh, we're in verse number 1 in Luke 21. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts into the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and he, she dropped two small coins I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor woman has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said the time is coming when all of these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not about the beauty of the building. This small gift can work wonders in the kingdom. God can do so much with so little. Sometimes we come to church and sometimes we're on the schedule for maybe a ministry here, and we say, but my ministry, what I'm doing is so insignificant. It's so small. It is significant. It is amazingly significant. God's ability to use a gift in, a, in, a, in, a, in no way hinders or enhances The gift itself, He can take that and He can can enhance that gift. It doesn't hinder it. The size of the gift doesn't hinder the gift. God can enhance any gift. It's that sacrificial faithfulness that we bring that is the true measure of the gift's significance. We all have gifts. We all bring gifts. It's not up to us to look at the to, to, to look at the, at the massiveness of the situation and say, I can't solve this. We just bring the gifts and let Jesus do it. Amen? It's, just, it's our job to bring it to Jesus and let Him feed 5,000 because He can do it. He can take the one person who you're bringing to Christ and multiply them into an amazing abundance. Even if that one person is only one person, it's absolutely worth it. But it's not up to us. It can't be our call. It can't be left to us to say the kingdom stops here with us. That I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not going to tell anyone because I'm afraid. I'm not going to bring anyone to church because I'm uncomfortable. Because what happens then is that we just put a cap on it. Because we're stopping right then. Everything that you give, everything that you touch, everything that you know is significant to Jesus. That includes everyone that you bring, everyone that you talk to, is significant to the kingdom of God. And you might say, Pastor, I don't really do much on Sundays. Maybe I come and I move equipment and... and Maybe I don't move equipment. Maybe I just, I, I come and, and, and I pray. That's significant. Everything that is done for the kingdom and in the kingdom is significant. Point number three in your notes, this is important. Andrew saw the value of unnoticeable service. Andrew is a picture of all of those who labor quietly in humble places. He didn't mind being hidden as long as the work was, was getting done. He was a leader with a servant's heart. Andrew never preached to multitudes or founded churches that we see in the Bible See, not all service in the kingdom of heaven comes with applause or pomp or circumstance or, or with name recognition or a name on a marquee or a, or, or, or a, a position as a Bible study leader or a pastor or, or a greeter outside of a front door. Andrew never brought crowds of leaders. He didn't train leaders. He just simply brought people to Jesus. That was his job one at a time. He brought people to Jesus. That was his ministry. And you know how much church training that required? Very little church training. That just required a willingness to go and tell. A willingness to simply go beyond, come and see. It's a willingness to come and die, and now to go and tell. There is no insignificant areas in service and ministry. We could could look at all the disciples and say that that Andrew must be the least among these disciples because we don't see a whole lot of what he did. He's certainly not written about as much as Peter and John is, but it's Peter who Andrew brought, who at Pentecost... Brought 3,000 people to Christ that day. Who brought Peter? Andrew, who brought one. Andrew went out to find one, and that one happened to be a man who brought thousands. Can you imagine our faith, how our faith would have been reshaped if Andrew would not have brought Peter to meet Jesus? If he wouldn't have brought that one. We might not be here today. I wonder about the one that you've been praying about. There seems to be a misconception in the church that in order to find Jesus that we need to be in a church service, that, that we, we need to be here in this room or at maybe a mega church or, or someplace and we can only come to Jesus during the, during the last song. And I won't argue that it's a great time to come to the Lord, but it's not the only time. Corporate settings of the church is not the only time when people come to Jesus. As a matter of fact, people come to Jesus always one at a time. They come personally one at a time, and I would bet you you may be one of these people or you might know somebody in your life who came to Christ outside of an organized church somebody that you know was led to Christ at a coffee shop maybe on a couch I came to Christ in my mother's bedroom she had had a conversation with my brother and myself on her bed on a Sunday morning before we went to church. I know the house that I was saved in. I know the room that I was saved in. It wasn't a church. It was because of one person, my mom, brought my brother and I. My brother and I have children as well who, who, who we've brought. And I'll tell you, when I was 10 years old, my mother would have had no clue that this morning I'd be up here talking to you about your one I have no clue do you know somebody in your life who is led to Jesus by somebody other than a pastor I bet you do See, there's somebody on your heart today that I'm asking you to continue to pray for and to be an influence in their life and intentionally reach out to. I'm not asking you to bring 100. I'm not asking you to bring 1,000. I'm not asking you to bring 10. I'm not asking you to bring 50 or even 11. Lower than that, I'm asking you to bring one. Bring One. This entire sermon series, we've been talking about this. And and I'll remind you again, it's not about church attendance. It's not about to to fill all these seats, although that would be a great thing to see this sermon series just uh, touch all of our hearts to where we're bringing people to church because bringing people to church is our conduit to bringing people to the kingdom. Amen? Amen? But even if you can't bring them here you can bring them to the kingdom wherever you're at. As Christians, we must continually understand that there's always going to be one person in your life that you could talk to about Jesus. It's like like learning to play an instrument. Some people say that they don't really, I I, I really don't know how to talk to people about Jesus. I want to think about, compare this to, to taking lessons on an instrument. We, we practice in front of one. Sometimes we'll practice by ourselves in our room in, in front of the, the mirror. And then, and then we say, you know what, hey, uh, can you listen to me? Can you listen to this? And, and, and I, I want to play for one person at home. But see, what happens is you kind of build that confidence, right? And then after a while, you're going to play in front of a group. Or maybe you're going to play in front of a few more. Telling people about Jesus, you, is, is it okay to be nervous? Yeah, you know what happens with practice? That builds confidence. Once you build confidence, you're going to have this desire. I want to play my guitar in front of a lot of people. I want to go out and tell a lot of people about Jesus. Building confidence gives you that, that thrust, that, in, that thrust in your heart to be able to express yourself to whoever is in front of you. That's the point of this whole sermon series. It's for us to know. And I'll remind you of something we talked about week number one in this sermon series. People who come to the church. Through our advertising and our marketing and our Facebook posts. Statistics show that only about 15% of people are going to come because they see something on Facebook, or they see the signs. 85% of people in American churches come because somebody invited them to church. I can't reach 85%. I can't. The church can't. The brand can't. The signs can't. Who's your one? Who's that one person that you're bringing? I want you to know That I can't influence your workplace, but you can. I can't influence everyone in your family, but you can. I can't influence the people that you spend time around on on Thursdays when you go play softball or, or, or maybe when you go hang out with the guys. I can't influence them, but you can. I ask you, who's your one? But if you were to ask Jesus who His one is, his one is you. His one is you. He's picked you. We all have a commission. The great commission is to go and tell people, and I mentioned this the first week, if you don't know everything to tell them about Jesus, you tell them, I want to come and introduce you to Jesus who saved my soul. Come with me. You bring them here. I will tell them. The church will will put our arms around new people to bring them into the family and bring them into the kingdom. Just bring. Just bring them. That's what the church is For. Because every soul in the kingdom is one less soul that is lost forever. Everyone here today, everyone here today who is a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian here today, we also mentioned this in the first sermon in the series, that the that the early believers didn't call themselves Christians. They actually referred to themselves as disciples. And disciples have a job. They have a mission. Their mission is to tell other people to go and tell. Jesus took the position of disciples very seriously. There was a time that our Lord knew that He was going, that he was going to leave this earth. And He wasn't going to be with them very much longer. And He wanted to make sure that his disciples remembered him. And he wanted to make sure that they continued a tradition for others to remember him. It was their responsibility to recognize the sacrifice that he was about to make for them to tell others. This morning as we focus our hearts on the one person that the Lord has put in your life to talk to about Him, to tell about Him, to bring to the Kingdom. We must take a moment and stop and remember what Jesus has done for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions concerning the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, he reminds the Corinthian church of two things. He reminds them about their personal salvation. And that participation in the Lord's Supper, that that it carries an inward and an outward aspect. Inwardly, participants were to examine ourselves spiritually before we take the Lord's Supper. Outwardly, it's to proclaim through the Lord's Supper the Lord's death until He returns. We want to examine our hearts before we... Eaten and drink and partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, when we're asked to examine our hearts first, it's because Jesus is already examining our hearts. The idea is for us to examine our hearts and for us to see our hearts, to look into our soul and see it the same way that Jesus does. What does Jesus see in our heart when He looks into our heart? What's there that's in His way? What's taking space in our hearts that He built, the room that He built for Himself? This examination, it's, really a, it, it is, it's a big deal. By taking the Lord's Supper, we should be having this personal moment. This personal moment with christ when we're remembering exactly what it is that he did for us the moment where we take communion it's a moment that we realize and we remember and we come with the deepest reverence this is when we stand before christ naked scared thankful humble and in this exploratory position that shows us what we're lacking, it reminds us that Christ died on the cross for our sins. That He paid a penalty that we all earned. That's what we earn. Also, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it together. The Lord's Supper is an act of a gathered family of those who believe in Jesus. It's for the church. It's actually, it's not an act for unbelievers. If you're here this morning, I'll tell you how our church takes the Lord's Supper. We're gonna pass around the elements in just a moment. And whether you're a member or not of this church, you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper. You're welcome to take communion. This church will always be open to that, but it is for believers if you're saved if you're a believer in Jesus Christ there's nothing secretive about your faith there's nothing secretive about the Lord's supper it's done in public it has a public meaning it's not secretive it doesn't have cultural rituals it is a public act of worship in fact 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 26 Paul says this as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a proclamation aspect of the Lord's Supper. Proclamation, not privacy. You can't privately proclaim something and expect anyone to notice. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is for Jesus to be noticed. I'm going to ask Marissa... And, uh, and Matthew um, if um, if uh, if you guys can bring the the elements Marissa and Matthew if you guys can bring the elements forward and as they're being passed out David's going to play and I ask you to examine your heart during this moment as the elements come by just Take a piece of bread and and take a cup and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. David's going to play and let's spend a few moments in quiet prayer and reflection and studying the inside of our own heart. For Paul wrote, for I've received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we come to you in humble thankfulness, in remembering you and your body that was given for us. In your name we pray, amen. Let's take of his body. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we remember the blood that was shed for us on the cross. And thank you for your atoning sacrifice for our sins, which we could not pay on our own, Lord. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take of the drink. Lord, we come this morning in remembrance of who you are, in remembrance of what you have done for us, in remembrance that you have a plan for every one of us, and we have a responsibility to tell others about You. That, Lord, this morning, we say a prayer for every empty seat in this room, but every empty seat in every church in our city, Lord, that You will bless that seat with somebody who desperately needs You. Lord, continuing, continue to let our, this church reach Paris from within Paris. Lord, there's not a person that we come across in our lives that we don't want to spend eternity with with you, Lord. Strengthen our hearts. Strengthen our words. Lord, we ask for you to reach out and bless that one. Lord, thank you for bringing us And let us be your servants in this world. In a moment, I'm going to be down in front. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I ask you to come. I ask you to come if this morning you are not entirely sure where eternity rests. I want to pray with you. Our prayer partners will be up here as well. And if you need prayer, you come forward as David sings. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?